Against the Valentinians, Part One, by Tertullian. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Valentinians, who are no doubt a very large body of heretics, comprising as they do so many apostates from the truth, who have a propensity for fables and no discipline to deter them therefrom, care for nothing so much as to obscure what they preach, if indeed they can be said to preach who obscure their doctrine. The officiousness with which they guard their doctrine is an officiousness which betrays their guilt. Their disgrace is proclaimed in the very earnestness with which they maintain their religious system. Now in the case of those Eleusinian mysteries, which are the very heresy of Athenian superstition, it is their secrecy that is their disgrace. Accordingly, they previously beset all access to their body with tormenting conditions, and they require a long initiation before they enroll their members, even instruction during five years for their perfect disciples, in order that they may mould their opinions by this suspension of full knowledge, and apparently raise the dignity of their mysteries in proportion to the craving for them which they have previously created. Then follows the duty of silence. Carefully is that guarded which is so long in finding. All the divinity, however, lies in their secret recesses. They are revealed at last all the aspirations of the fully initiated. The entire mystery of the sealed tongue, the symbol of virility, but this allegorical representation under the pretext of nature's reverend name obscures a real sacrilege by help of an arbitrary symbol, and by empty images obviates the reproach of falsehood. In like manner the heretics, who are now the object of our remarks, the Valentinians, have formed Eleusinian dissipations of their own, consecrated by a profound silence, having nothing of the heavenly in them but their mystery. By the help of the sacred names and titles and arguments of true religion, they have fabricated the vainest and foulest figments for men's pliant liking, out of the affluent suggestions of holy scripture, since from its many springs many errors may well emanate. If you propose to them inquiries sincere and honest, they answer you with stern look and contracted brow, and say, The subject is profound." If you try them with subtle questions, with the ambiguities of their double tongue, they affirm a community of faith with yourself. If you intimate to them that you understand their opinions, they insist on knowing nothing themselves. If you come to a close engagement with them, they destroy your own fond hope of a victory over them by a self-immolation. Not even to their own disciples do they commit a secret before they have made sure of them. They have the knack of persuading men before instructing them, although truth persuades by teaching, but does not teach by first persuading. For this reason we are branded by them as simple, and as being merely so without being wise also, as if indeed wisdom were compelled to be wanting in simplicity, whereas the Lord unites them both. Be ye therefore wise as serpents, and simple as doves. Now if we on our parts be accounted foolish because we are simple, does it then follow that they are not simple because they are wise? Most perverse, however, are they who are not simple, even as they are most foolish who are not wise. 
and yet if i must choose i should prefer taking the latter condition for the lesser fault since it is perhaps better to have a wisdom which falls short in quantity than that which is bad in quantity better to be in error than to mislead besides the face of the lord is patiently waited for by those who seek him in simplicity of heart as says the very wisdom not of valentinus but of solomon then again infants have borne by their blood a testimony to christ would you say that it was children who shouted crucify him they were neither children nor infants in other words they were not simple the apostle too bids us to become children again towards god to be as children in malice, by our simplicity, yet as being also wise in our practical faculties. At the same time, with respect to the order of development in wisdom, I have admitted that it flows from simplicity. In brief, the dove has usually served to figure Christ, the serpent to tempt him. The one, even from the first, has been the harbinger of divine peace, the other, from the beginning, has been the despoiler of the divine image." accordingly simplicity alone will be more easily able to know and to declare god whereas wisdom alone will rather do him violence and betray him let then the serpent hide himself as much as he is able and let him rest all his wisdom in the labyrinths of his obscurities let him dwell deep down in the ground let him worm himself into secret holes let him unroll his length through his sinuous joints let him tortuously crawl though not all at once, beast as he is that skulks the light. Of our dove, however, how simple is the very home, always in high and open places facing the light. As the symbol of the Holy Spirit, it loves the radiant east, that figure of Christ. Nothing causes truth a blush except only being hidden, because no man will be ashamed to give ear thereto. No man will be ashamed to recognize him as God, whom nature has already commended to him, whom he already perceives in all his works, him indeed who is simply for this reason imperfectly known, because man has not thought of him as only one, because he has named him in a plurality of gods and adored him in other forms. Yet to induce oneself to turn from this multitude of deities to another crowd, to remove from a familiar authority to an unknown one, to wrench oneself from what is manifest to what is hidden, is to offend faith on the very threshold. Now even suppose that you are initiated into the entire fable. Will it not occur to you that you have heard something very like it from your fond nurse when you were a baby? Amongst the lullabies she sang to you about the towers of Lamia and the horns of the sun. Let, however, any man approach the subject from a knowledge of the faith, which he has otherwise learnt, as soon as he finds so many names of eons, so many marriages, so many offsprings, so many exits, so many issues, felicities and infelicities of a dispersed and mutilated deity, will that man hesitate at once to pronounce that these are the fables and endless genealogies which the inspired apostle by anticipation condemned, whilst these seeds of heresy were even then shooting forth? Deservedly, therefore, must they be regarded as wanting in simplicity, and as merely prudent, who produce such fables not without difficulty, and defend them only indirectly, who at the same time do not thoroughly instruct those whom they teach. This, of course, shows their astuteness, if their lessons are disgraceful, their unkindness, if they are honourable. 
As for us, however, who are the simple folk, we know all about it. In short, this is the very first weapon with which we are armed for our encounter. It unmasks and brings to view the whole of their depraved system. And in this we have the first augury of our victory, because even merely to point out that which is concealed with so great an outlay of artifice is to destroy it. We know, I say, most fully their actual origin, and we are quite aware why we call them Valentinians, although they affect to disavow their name. They have departed, it is true, from their founder, yet is their origin by no means destroyed. And even if it chance to be changed, the very change bears testimony to the fact. Valentinus had expected to become a bishop because he was an able man both in genius and eloquence. Being indignant, however, that another obtained the dignity by reason of a claim which confessorship had given him, he broke with the church of the true faith. Just like those restless spirits which, when roused by ambition, are usually inflamed with the desire of revenge, he applied himself with all his might to exterminate the truth, and finding the clue of a certain old opinion, he marked out a path for himself with the subtlety of a serpent. Ptolemaeus afterwards entered on the same path by distinguishing the names and numbers of the eons into personal substances which, however, he kept apart from God. Valentinus had included these in the very essence of the deity as senses and affections of motion. Sundry bipaths were then struck off therefrom by Heraclion and Secundus and the magician Marcus. Theotemus worked hard about the images of the law. Valentinus, however, was as yet nowhere, and still the Valentinians derive their name from Valentinus. Axionicus at Antioch is the only man who at the present time does honour to the memory of Valentinus by keeping his rules to the full. But this heresy is permitted to fashion itself into as many various shapes as a Cortesian, who usually changes and adjusts her dress every day. And why not? when they review that spiritual seed of theirs in every man after this fashion, whenever they have hit upon any novelty, they forthwith call their presumption a revelation, their own perverse ingenuity a spiritual gift, but they deny all unity, admitting only diversity. And thus we clearly see that, setting aside their customary dissimulation, most of them are in a divided state, being ready to say, and that sincerely, of certain points of their belief, this is not so, and I take this in a different sense, and I do not admit that. By this variety, indeed, innovation is stamped on the very face of their rules, besides which it wears all the colourable features of ignorant conceits. My own path, however, lies along the original tenets of their chief teachers, not with the self-appointed leaders of their promiscuous followers nor shall we hear it said of us from any quarter that we have of our own mind fashioned our own materials since these have been already produced both in respect of the opinions and their refutations in carefully written volumes by so many eminently holy and excellent men not only those who have lived before us but those also who were contemporary with the heresiarchs themselves for instance justin philosopher and martyr Miltiades, the sophist of the churches, Irenaeus, that very exact inquirer into all doctrines, our own Proculus, the model of chaste old age and Christian eloquence. 
All these it would be my desire closely to follow in every work of faith, even as in this particular one. Now, if there are no heresies at all, but what those who refute them are supposed to have fabricated, then the apostle who predicted them must have been guilty of falsehood. If, however, there are heresies, they can be no other than those which are the subject of discussion. No writer can be supposed to have so much time on his hands as to fabricate materials which are already in his possession. In order, then, that no one may be blinded by so many outlandish names collected together and adjusted at pleasure, and of doubtful import, I mean, in this little work wherein we merely undertake to propound this heretical mystery, to explain in what manner we are to use them. Now the rendering by some of these names from the Greek, so as to produce an equally obvious sense of the word, is by no means an easy process. In the case of some others, the genders are not suitable, while others again are more familiarly known in their Greek form. For the most part, therefore, we shall use the Greek names. Their meanings will be seen on the margins of the page. Nor will the Greek be unaccompanied with the Latin equivalents. Only these will be marked in lines above, for the purpose of explaining the personal names, rendered necessity by the ambiguities of such of them as admit some different meaning. But although I must postpone all discussion, and be content at present with the mere exposition of the heresy, still, wherever any scandalous feature shall seem to require a castigation, it must be attacked by all means, if only with a passing thrust. Let the reader regard it as the skirmish before the battle. It will be my drift to show how to wound, rather than to inflict deep gashes. If in any instance mirth be excited, this will be quite as much as the subject deserves. There are many things which deserve refutation in such a way as to have no gravity expended on them. Vain and silly topics are met with a special fitness by laughter. Even the truth may indulge in ridicule because it is jubilant. It may play with its enemies because it is fearless. Only we must take care that its laughter be not unseemly and so itself be laughed at. But wherever its mirth is decent, there is a duty to indulge it. And so at last I enter on my task. Beginning with Aeneas, the Roman poet, he simply spoke of the spacious saloons of heaven, either on account of their elevated sight, or because in Homer he had read about Jupiter banqueting therein. As for our heretics, however, it is marvellous what stories upon stories and what heights upon heights they have hung up, raised and spread out as a dwelling for each several god of theirs. Even our Creator has had arranged for him the saloons of Aeneas in the fashion of private rooms, with chamber piled upon chamber, and assigned to each god by just as many staircases as there were heresies. The universe, in fact, has been turned into rooms to let. Such stories of the heavens you would imagine to be detached tenements in some happy isle of the blessed, I know not where. There the god even of the Valentinians has his dwelling in the attics. They call him indeed as to his essence, Aeon Telios, perfect Aeon. But in respect of his personality, Proache, before the beginning, and Earche, the beginning, and sometimes Bythos, depth, a name which is most unfit for one who dwells in the heights above. They describe him as unbegotten, 
immense, infinite, invisible, and eternal, as if when they describe him to be such as we know he ought to be, they straightway prove him to be a being who may be said to have had such an existence even before all things else. I indeed insist upon it that he is such a being, and there is nothing which I detect in beings of this sort more obvious than that they who are said to have been before all things, things too not their own, are found to be behind all things. Let it, however, be granted that this bythos of theirs existed in the infinite ages of the past, in the greatest and profoundest repose, in the extreme rest of a placid, and, if I may use the expression, stupid divinity, such as Epicurus has enjoined upon us. And yet, although they would have him be alone, they assign to him a second person in himself, and with himself, Enoia, thought, which they also call both Charis, grace, and Sega, silence. Other things, as it happened, conduced in this most agreeable repose to remind him of the need of, by and by, producing out of himself the beginning of all things. This he deposits in lieu of seed in the genital region, as it were, of the womb of his Sega. Instantaneous conception is the result, Sega becomes pregnant, and is delivered, of course, in silence, and her offspring is Nus, mind, very like his father and his equal in every respect. In short, he alone is capable of comprehending the measureless and incomprehensible greatness of his father. Accordingly, he is even called the father himself, and beginning of all things, and with great propriety, monogenes, the only begotten. And yet not with absolute propriety, since he is not born alone, for along with him a female also proceeded, whose name was Veritas, truth. But how much more suitably might Monogenes be called Protogenes, first begotten, since he was begotten first? Thus Bythos and Sega, Nus and Veritas, are alleged to be the first fourfold team of the Valentinian set of gods, the parent stock and origin of them all. For immediately when Nus received the function of a procreation of his own, he too produces out of himself Sermo, the word, and Vita, the life. If this latter existed not previously, of course she existed not in Bythos. And a pretty absurdity would it be if life existed not in God. However, this offspring also produces fruit, having for its mission the initiation of the universe and the formation of the entire Pleroma. It procreates homo, man, and ecclesia, the church. Thus you have an ogdoad, a double tetrad, out of the conjunctions of males and females, the cells, so to speak, of the primordial eons, the fraternal nuptials of the Valentinian gods, the simple originals of heretical sanctity and majesty, a rabble, shall I say, of criminals, or of deities, at any rate the fountain of all ulterior fecundity, for behold, when the second tetrad, Sermo and Vita, Homo and Ecclesia, had borne fruit to the Father's glory, having an intense desire of themselves to present to the Father something similar of their own, they bring other issue into being, conjugal of course, as the others were, by the union of the twofold nature. On the one hand, Sermo and Vita pour out at a birth a half-score of eons. On the other hand, Homo and Ecclesia produce a couple more, so furnishing an equipoise to their parents, since this pair with the other ten make up just as many as they did themselves procreate. 
I now give the names of the half-score whom I have mentioned, Bithios, profound, and Mixis, mixture, Ageratos, never old, and Henios, union, Autophys, essential nature, and Hedony, pleasure, Asinitos, immovable, and Syncrasis, co-mixture, Monogenes, only begotten, and Macaria, happiness. On the other hand, these will make up the number twelve, to which I have also referred, Paracletus, comforter, and Pistis, faith, Patricus, paternal, and Elpis, hope, Metricos, maternal, and Agape, love, Enos, praise, and Synesis, intelligence, Ecclesiasticus, son of Ecclesia, and Macariotes, blessedness, Thalitus, perfect, and Sophia, wisdom. I cannot help here quoting from a like example what may serve to show the import of these names. In the schools of Carthage there was once a certain Latin rhetorician, an excessively cool fellow whose name was Phosphorus. He was personating a man of valour and wound up with saying, I come to you, excellent citizens, from battle, with victory for myself, with happiness for you, full of honour, covered with glory, a favourite of fortune, the greatest of men, decked with triumph and forthwith his scholars began to shout for the school of phosphorus fev ah are you a believer in fortunata and hedony and asenitus and theletus then shout out your fev for the school of ptolemy this must be that mystery of the pleroma the fullness of the thirtyfold divinity let us see what special attributes belong to these numbers four and eight and twelve Meanwhile, with the number thirty, all fecundity ceases. The generating force and power and desire of the eons is spent. As if there were not still left some strong remnant for curdling numbers. As if no other names were to be got out of the page's hall. For why are there not sets of fifty and of a hundred procreated? Why, too, are there no comrades and boon companions named for them? but further there is an acceptance of persons inasmuch as nous alone among them enjoys all the knowledge of the immeasurable father joyous and exulting while they of course pine in sorrow to be sure nous so far as in him lay both wished and trying to impart to the others also all that he had learnt about the greatness and incomprehensibility of the father but his mother siga interposed she who you must know imposes silence even on her own beloved heretics although they affirm that this is done at the will of the Father, who will have all to be inflamed with a longing after himself. Thus, while they are tormenting themselves with these internal devices, while they are burning with the secret longing to know the Father, the crime is almost accomplished. For of the twelve eons which Homo and Ecclesia had produced, the youngest by birth, never mind the solecism, since Sophia Wisdom is her name, unable to restrain herself, breaks away without the society of her husband Theletus in quest of the father, and contracts that kind of sin which had indeed arisen amongst the others who were conversant with Nous, but had flowed on to this eon, that is, to Sophia as is usual with maladies which, after arising in one part of the body, spread abroad their infection to some other limb. The fact is, under a pretense of love to the father, she was overcome with a desire to rival Nous, who alone rejoiced in the knowledge of the father. But when Sophia, straining after impossible aims, was disappointed of her hope, she is both overcome with difficulty and racked with affection. Thus she was all but swallowed up by reason of the charm and toil of her research, and dissolved into the remnant of his substance. 
nor would there have been any alternative for her than perdition if she had not by good luck fallen in with horace limit he too had considerable power he is the foundation of the great universe and externally the guardian thereof to him they give the additional names of crux cross and lytrotes redeemer and carpistes emancipator when sophia was thus rescued from danger and tardily persuaded she relinquished further research after the father and found repose and laid aside all her excitement or enthymesis desire along with the passion which had come over her but some dreamers have given another account of the abbreviation and recovery of sophia after her vain endeavours and the disappointment of her hope she was i suppose disfigured with paleness and emaciation and that neglect of her beauty which was natural to one who was deploring the denial of the father an affliction which was no less painful than his loss then in the midst of all this sorrow she by herself alone without any conjugal help conceived and bare a female offspring does this excite your surprise well even the hen has the power of being able to bring forth by her own energy they say too that among vultures there are only females which become parents alone at any rate she was a mother without aid from a male and she began at last to be afraid that her end was even at hand she was all in doubt about the treatment of her case and took pains at self-concealment remedies could nowhere be found for where then should we have tragedies and comedies from which to borrow the process of exposing what has been born without connubial modesty while the thing is in this evil plight she raises her eyes and turns them to the father having however striven in vain as her strength was failing her she falls to praying her entire kindred also supplicates in her behalf and especially nous why not what was the cause of so vast an evil yet not a single casualty befell sophia without its effect all her sorrows operate inasmuch as all that conflict of hers contributes to the origin of matter her ignorance her fear her distress become substances hereupon the father by and by being moved produces in his own image with a view to these circumstances the horos whom we have mentioned above and this he does by means of monogenes nous a male female eon because there is this variation of statement about the father's sex they also go on to tell us that horos is likewise called metagogus that is a conductor about as well as horothetes setter of limits by his assistance they declare that sophia was checked in her illicit courses and purified from all evils and thenceforth strengthened in virtue and restored to the conjugal state they add that she indeed remained within the bounds of the pleroma but that her antithemus with the accruing passion was banished by horos and crucified and cast out from the pleroma even as they say malum foras evil avaunt still that was a spiritual essence as being the natural impulse of an eon although without form or shape inasmuch as it had apprehended nothing and therefore was pronounced to be an infirm and feminine fruit accordingly after the banishment of the enthymesis and the return of her mother sophia to her husband the illustrious monogenes the nous released indeed from all care and concern of the father in order that he might consolidate all things and defend and at last fix the pleroma and so prevent any concussion of the kind again once more emits a new couple christ and the holy spirit i should suppose the coupling of two males to be a very shameful thing or else the holy spirit must be a female and so the male is discredited by the female 
One divinity is assigned in the case of all these to procure a complete adjustment among the eons. Even from this fellowship in a common duty, two schools actually arise, two chairs, and to some extent the inauguration of a division in the doctrine of Valentinus. It was the function of Christ to instruct the eons in the nature of their conjugal relations. You see what the whole thing was, of course and how to form some guess about the unbegotten, and to give them the capacity of generating within themselves the knowledge of the Father, it being impossible to catch the idea of him or comprehend him, in short, even to enjoy any perception of him, either by the eye or the ear, except through monogenes, the only begotten. Well, I will even grant them what they allege about knowing the Father, so that they do not refuse us the attainment of the same. I would rather point out what is perverse in their doctrine, how they were taught that the incomprehensible part of the Father was the cause of their own perpetuity, whilst that which might be comprehended of him was the reason of their generation and formation. Now by these several positions the tenant, I suppose, is insinuated that it is expedient for God not to be apprehended on the very ground that the incomprehensibility of his character is the cause of perpetuity whereas what in him is comprehensible is productive not of perpetuity but rather of conditions which lack perpetuity namely nativity and formation the son indeed they make capable of comprehending the father the manner in which he is comprehended the recently produced christ fully taught them to the holy spirit however belonged the special gifts whereby they having been all set on a complete par in respect of their earnestness to learn should be enabled to offer up their thanksgiving and be introduced to a true tranquillity. Thus they are all on the self-same footing in respect of form and knowledge, all of them having become what each of them severally is, none being a different being because they are all what the others are. They are all turned into nooses, into homos, into thalitases, and so in the case of the females, into siges, into zoes, into ecclesias, into fortunatus, so that Ovid would have blotted out his own metamorphoses if he had only known our larger one in the present day. Straight away they were reformed and thoroughly established, and being composed to rest from the truth, they celebrate the Father in a chorus of praise, in the exuberance of their joy. The father himself also revelled in the glad feeling, of course because his children and grandchildren sang so well and why should he not revel in absolute delight was not the pleroma freed from all danger what ship's captain fails to rejoice even with indecent frolic every day we witness the uproarious ebullitions of sailors joys therefore as sailors always exult over the reckoning they pay in common so do these eons enjoy a similar pleasure one as they now all are in form and as i may add in feeling too with the concurrence of even their new brethren and masters christ and the holy spirit they contribute into one common stock the best and most beautiful thing with which they are severally adorned vainly as i suppose for if they were all one by reason of the above-mentioned thorough equalization there was no room for the process of a common reckoning which for the most part consists of a pleasing variety they all contributed the one good thing which they all were there would be, in all probability, a formal procedure in the mode or in the form of the very equalization in question. Accordingly, out of the donation which they contributed to the honor and glory of the Father, they jointly fashion the most beautiful constellation of the Pleroma and its perfect fruit, Jesus. Him they also surname Soter, Saviour, and Christ, and Sermo, Word, after his ancestors, and lastly, Omnia, all things, 
as formed from a universally culled nosegay like the jay of aesop the pandora of hesiod the bowl of Accius, the honey cake of nestor the miscellany of ptolemy how much nearer the mark if these idle title-mongers had called him pancarpian after certain athenian customs by way of adding external honour also to their wonderful puppet they produce for him a bodyguard of angels of like nature if this be their mutual condition it may be all right if however they are consubstantial with sota for i have discovered how doubtfully the case is stated where will be his eminence when surrounded by attendants who are co-equal with himself in this series then is contained the first emanation of eons who are alike born and married and produce offspring there are the most dangerous fortunes of sophia in her ardent longing for the father the most seasonable help of horos the expiation of her enthymesis and accruing passion the instruction of christ and the holy spirit their tutelar reform of the eons the piebald ornamentation of sota the consubstantial retinue of the angels all that remains according to you is the fall of the curtain and the clapping of hands what remains in my opinion however is that you should hear and take heed at all events these things are said to have been played out within the company of the playrama the first scene of the tragedy the rest of the play however is beyond the curtain i mean outside of the playrama and yet if it be such within the bosom of the father within the embrace of the guardian horus why must it be outside in free space where god does not exist end of against the valentinians part one by tertullian